I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix feature film, Pain Hustlers. Throw the first stone, sure. But this is my story. And I did it for the right reasons. Today, we're talking to BAFTA award-winning director and producer David Yates and producer Lawrence Gray. Liza Drake is a blue-collar single mom who has just lost her job and is at the end of her rope. A chance meeting with a pharmaceutical sales rep puts her on an upwards trajectory economically, but dubious path ethically as she becomes entangled in a dangerous racketeering scheme. Dealing with her unhinged boss, her daughter's worsening medical condition, and the awareness of the devastation the company is causing forces Liza to examine her choices. Inspired by true events, the Netflix film Pain Hustlers stars Emily Blunt, Chris Evans, Andy Garcia, and Katherine O'Hara. It's a sharp and revealing look at what some people do out of desperation and others do out of greed. Must have been good to get a greedy fuck like you to rap before you cashed out. Well, you don't know me. I am you, Liza. We're just selfish pieces of shit. Only with you, there's no limit. And I'm joined now by director and producer David Yates and producer Lawrence Gray. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you very much. Lovely Thanks to be here. Thanks for having us. So, Lawrence, how did Pain Hustlers find its way to you? I had been uh, looking for something uh, in the opioid space, uh, of, uh, some underlying IP uh, article or book in the space, and then uh, came across this uh, article in uh, New York Times Magazine from Evan Hughes, which was completely different than anything I'd imagined uh, looking for. I was uh, probably looking for you know something more traditional, and this uh, was a much more exciting prospect. It seemed like a very interesting tapestry to be telling a story in the world of pharma, and the characters were just so unique and so colorful and vivid and not like nothing I'd seen before, and that just attracted me. I knew there was a a bigger, more interesting, uh, more compelling story uh, in, in these pages. Um, so, David, uh, people know you as the director of the final four Harry Potter movies, all three Fantastic Beasts movies. I've always wanted to ask a director like you, what is it like to jump between genres that are so dramatically different uh, one to the other? I mean, those movies are so fantastical. They include so many visual effects. You're not looking at the monitor and seeing exactly what you're going to see or anything close to it in the final cut of the film. What is it like making that leap? Do you know what's interesting about the pusses? When you actually really drill down into them, they are a combination of many different genres. It's bizarre, really, because I would, when we were making them, I always thought one day I'd be directing a comedy because there'd be a really playful scene between the kids that was very funny. And then the next day, Dumbledore would fall off a building and die, and you were dealing with grief and drama. And then the next week, you'd be doing a big action sequence with lots of visual effects and stunts. So those movies... They were big, generous, enjoyable storytelling experiences that conveyed all sorts of different genres, comedy, even horror. You know, at the end of Half-Blood Prince, when Harry and Dumbledore go down to recover the troth, 
ultimately they find you know it's a, it's a horror movie that they're, they're surrounded by these dead people who are all coming alive it's like a zombie movie so those movie experiences were were sort of they crossed all sorts of genres in a way but what i really loved about this project that Lawrence and i made i had never made a movie in america before so it was my first experience of storytelling in an american landscape i came across the article by Evan Hughes separately before he'd written this book almost in tandem as Lawrence came across it which was sort of like lightning striking twice and i was fascinated like Lawrence by these characters these extraordinary characters in this low rent farmer world who were doing the most extraordinary things to make a buck and coming from the british healthcare system where you know it's a system based on need rather than profit um it just intrigued me that a significant part of a sort of american car industry could be devoted to the profit motive at the expense of potentially people's health as soon as i read evan's article i felt like lawrence there's a really intriguing story here to bring to the screen that says something about america and certainly something about this very specific industry and lawrence and i hooked up on the phone and we talked about the article Lawrence introduced me to Wells. I read some of Wells's work, which I thought was terrific, and we went off on this journey to build a screenplay across a period of two or three years. And it's been an enormous pleasure, sort of navigating the experience of making a film with Lawrence with Wells. It's never easy making anything. So when you go into the trenches and you try and get something together, you want to be with allies and partners who not just watch your back, but who are in it with you. And I feel we have, we've had that experience making this film. It's been, it's been a real pleasure, actually. You know, it's interesting what you both talked about, about some of like sort of the motifs of this story. You know, I've been working as a journalist for a long time. I have played a part in some of the opioids coverage in my own newsroom. And there are elements of this adaptation in your film that, you know, I haven't seen before. You know, we don't often see stories where any kind of any kind of accountability. You don't often see stories where you see real characters, in, you know, portrayed in this way. And I'm wondering, Lawrence, like what are some of the motifs? here that you found particularly interesting that you wanted people to see like in this fictionalized version that you think we haven't seen before I mean those were some of mine is that is that what you were kind of hoping that we would get yeah well I was thinking about that we've never really had a film that's peeked behind the curtain of the pharma industry and brought it to life in a really specific well-observed uh, kind of way and I you know some of the protosorial impressions that I'd had first, thinking about this were uh, Oliver Stone's Wall Street or uh, Matt Wiener doing Mad Men. He wasn't, spe- they, n- neither were specifically taking uh, some actual events or an actual character and telling uh, a very linear story based on an ar- article or book, but the world is so incredibly well observed, you know, and we had come across uh, a video of pharma execs doing a make-believe rap video dressed as fentanyl products, essentially singing, rapping their crimes. It just seemed like this is absolutely just an astonishing 
reality that people could be living in their own bubble in this way. And I love worlds of just narcissism and and criminal conspiracy where the the actors are just so greedy and so wrapped up in their own deal that they don't even uh, take into account just the the basic human reaction and moral compass that you'd have looking at this kind of world. So it seemed like just really colorful characters and a really interesting world as a way into telling, as David said, a story that would have larger significance for our medical industry, what's happening in this country, and uh, I think what's happening globally as well. You know, it's interesting, David, you you touched on this before about, you know, the differences between the American health system and and what you're more accustomed to. But I'm curious, as you sort of delved into this, you know, one of the aspects of this that's really interesting to me, and I know that regulations around it have changed tremendously, but, you know, some of it still exists, is the pharma rep industry, which is kind of what we're seeing a lot of in this film, that portrayed on screen again, never seen that before. What were you surprised about? when you learn more about this particular part of healthcare, which really does influence a lot of, you know, what we experience as healthcare consumers here in the U.S., the the fact that these reps have so much influence on, you know, what doctors, how they interact with us as patients here in the United States. I've always been fascinated by salespeople, people who've been able to get under the skin of someone and reach them and persuade them to do something that they might not otherwise do. And our movie really delves into the the sort of underbelly of that, how these sales reps in particular, these pharma reps, in our story, specifically went after fairly vulnerable uh, doctors, doctors who were going through divorces, doctors who were drinking too heavily, doctors who were gambling. So these were vulnerable people who were looking for friendship, who were looking for love, who were looking for security. And they purposefully focused on these targets because they knew they could win sales with these particular doctors. And what struck me as quite amazing was it didn't take too many of these doctors to be able to leverage huge profits. Once you had a few dozen of them in your pocket and you persuaded them to write your your drug, the profits were quite significant. In terms of the huge, great universe of the pharma industry, it's kind of small beer in some ways, but it's we're still talking about massive amounts of money but that was being sort of made by uh, the pharma reps in our story. And the, the one thing that I really liked about this story was, in a way, I always felt if we're going to sort of dive into this world, you want it to feel like a universal story. You want it to feel accessible, not just to an American audience, but to a, an audience in Europe and the UK and around the world. And so in a way, I always felt it was a story of the American dream and what you have to do to pursue that dream. And by focusing and building the story around a fictional character, Liza Drake, played by Emily Blunt, we wanted to look at what we're all asked to do as we sort of, you know, we start our careers. There's this ambition to do amazing stuff, but if it, the field in which you're playing in is not regulated properly it can take you down a moral maze and it can lead you into some pretty tricky territory. And so this is a story really about the American dream going wrong, if you like, when a particular industry isn't regulated for the benefit of those it's supposed to serve. It's actually just sort of the regulation isn't there. It's all for profit and things go terribly wrong. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's something that we think about a lot here, which is, you know, is the American dream real? You know, is there a bootstraps? Is there is there an opportunity for everyone? And 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 Lawrence, you know, I, I read that you said, you know, you wanted the film to strike a balance portraying a tragic issue with characters that can be darkly comical. And David just said something about vulnerability of the doctors and how, you know, they did target these doctors who were like in these perilous places. It also struck me that a lot of the sales reps that we see portrayed in the film were also sort of on the margins and in perilous places. And of course, the patients were too. I mean, is that is that something that you really wanted to get across that there's just like layers of people on the margins here and that in, in your story here, the corporation is really like there's like just sort of a strata of people that are all sort of on this ladder of being taken advantage of in, in, in myriad ways. Ultimately, the ultimate victims, of course, are the, are the patients, but it's much more complex than that. Well, we, we didn't want to paint uh, the pharma industry with a simplistic brush. You know, it's a industry that is on the cutting edge of innovation, on the cutting edge of culture. And so there are large profits to be had. Some of it is, you know, if you follow the story of those two doctors who won the Nobel Prize recently for the RNA innovations, like, boy, this is the most wonderful 13 billion people have benefited from from what they're doing. So there's this incredible, just incredible positive side to the industry. But then you have cads and thieves and, you know, shysters who are people who claim to be those folks, but are actually have a much more base, much more financially driven goal. So we, I think, wanted to get into the nuance of the reality of that. So that there is a value to pain medication to people who have terminal illnesses, people who are suffering. And a lot of the advocacy groups and nonprofits that we spoke to were was really important to them that we didn't exclude that from the movie. But of course, uh, what's interesting about our characters in part is that while there's some truth to that, they are manipulating that truth and they are hyperbolizing that truth and doing everything they can to to make a buck. And that was, I think, as David was saying earlier, what made these characters particularly fascinating is they're at the lowest possible strata of this world. They're they feel, you know, they're barging the gates and doing anything and everything they can to get in and in some cases like this one, and unfortunately it's all too common, they're really crossing a legal line, crossing a moral line. And um, that's what made it interesting for us to explore. David, the cast is anchored by Emily Blunt. And as you said, there's no real person uh, that Liza is based on. So how did you all go about finding this character and developing this character? And I'll just say I'm a huge Emily Blunt fan. I, I find her mesmerizing in everything she's in. And I think that she really delivers this role in this film. Yeah, it was interesting. We took a little while to find Liza, I think, uh, across two or three or four drafts. It was always and it, we kept and, and it was across those two or three or four drafts where we started to just we kept saying to Wells, let's build Liza, let's build Liza. In the first draft or two, we were sort of emphasized, we, there were so many lovely, gorgeous characters that Wells was starting to lean into. We really wanted to find a focus and to be carried through this story with one particular character. And Liza felt the most intriguing and exciting to us. You made sheep rock out of dried pig shit? Oh, almost, yeah. You own a restaurant in Savannah? How'd that pan out? It's doing good. It's doing solid numbers for my ex. 
Give me a shot, please. Come on, give me a shot. And actually, funny enough, Lawrence, do you recall? I think there was something. There was something about his his own wife's sort of business aspirations that, in part, inspired the, at least the starting point for Liza, someone who was enormously optimistic, amazingly empathetic, had a great belief in the future, and would start. A series of small businesses, and whenever you're building anything, if you're building a movie or a business, it's tortuous to sort of get anywhere. And ultimately, and I think I think Wells's wife had sort of tried a few different things, and he'd seen her go through those trials and tribulations. And there's something inspiring about her determination to build something of value and meaning. And and that there was in the germ of that, Liza was born. I think in terms of this human being who had enormous optimism and great empathy with people and wanted to achieve something. And then we dialed in other qualities that we felt were important. Uh, with our Eliza Dre, with the human being we were creating, she didn't have a high education. She struggled at school. She'd had a, you know, she was brought up effectively by a single mom herself. The odds in life were kind of stacked against her. And then bring to that my own experience as a kid growing up in the north of England. My father was away a lot. He, was a, he, he, he worked at sea. He was a wonderful man, but we didn't get to see him very often. So I spent a lot of time being brought up by a single mum. And I saw the challenges of that and how tough it is on single women to sort of navigate through life bringing up kids. And so there was that sort of feeling that I was passionate about telling a story about a single mum to reflect my experiences of growing up. And then we loved movies like Aaron Brockovich, you know, this sort of, the, 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 the person in the office who you least expect to have the biggest influence and the biggest impact on the world in which they move, and then they surprise you, and then they excite you, and then, my God, they've turned the world upside down. And something about celebrating people who are really the center point of our lens was what we wanted to to find in Liza Drake. I think one of the things I love about your film is that um, some of the characters, I think ultimately they face some accountability and that we see them, you know, in a certain light, you know, closer to the end as things develop. But you can't not root for them at certain points in the film. And one of those characters for me is Pete. Chris Evans, I think, really disappears into this character. You know, he sort of has this like South Bostonish accent in Florida. He's a big franchise actor. I mean, that's what we've most recently seen him in. And you really give him an opportunity, um, David, to work in a kind of a surprising way here. I mean, was he like having a good time doing this kind of role? <laughs> it's a very different than what he's been doing lately. I think. He absolutely relished playing a low-rent farmer douchebag. <laughs> oh, we just hope we'll be fucking Willie. 500 Is that even legal? 67 and a 65. Everyone else on the road's doing 80. Not to mention we just lost the best cancer pain med the world's ever seen, so who gives a yeah, fuck? Yeah, but if the meds are that good, why do we have to pay him? Because if we don't, someone else will. Big Farm is about finding that gray line, getting as close as you can without crossing over. <laughs> it was, for him, it was kind of manner from heaven to be able to come in in a suit that was slightly ill-fitting. But one of the joys, actually, of setting this up and being in prep in Atlanta was actually having Colleen Atwood, this Oscar-winning costume designer, getting the most ill-fitting, dodgy-looking suits on Chris Evans. 
it was a pleasure to watch her pull together these sort of suits that were just not quite right. And Chris loved the idea of playing this this uh, character. And the very first day of shooting, we did a series of interviews, which feature in the film throughout the film. And almost immediately, he had Pete Brenner down pat. On one hand, there were times I wanted her to die in a plane crash, and other times where I wish she would die in a slower, more painful way. Look, the thing about Liza is she didn't give a fuck about anybody. Actually, I didn't even give him a note for the first four or five takes. I just said, you know who this human being is, don't you? He's someone you know really well. And it, it turns out there's a character he knows in Boston, either as he was growing up, he was very discreet. He couldn't tell us who he was, but he was clearly inspired, not just by someone he knew from from his life in Boston, but also he'd done a lot of reading and research. We'd sent him a whole pack of stuff to look at and a ton of video on some of these people in this world. And he'd sort of consumed all of that. And then he had this real reference of a human being in Boston that he knew. And that sort of all kind of fed into this creation of Pete Brenner. I think he loved the opportunity to play him. Really enjoyed it. This is a brand you won't be familiar with, but he reminded me of a manager at a, a store that used to exist called Chess King, which was uh. a men's <laughs> clothing store with a certain brand of ill-fitting suit that was exactly what he was wearing in this in this film. Um, Lawrence, you have a really stellar supporting cast in this uh, in this film too. Who were the standouts for you? I mean, we are so blessed in this movie. Obviously, beyond just how brilliant Emily and Chris are in the film, it was a real, real exciting opportunity to work with Catherine O'Hara, who plays Emily's mom in the movie. Don't be nasty to me. I'm not being nasty. I am the one person, Liza, the one person in your life who's stuck by you. When everyone else was all crazy, Liza blew it again. I held my tongue. Did you? I said, so you no. thought I was a loser too? No. Yeah, and you just lied about it? Is that your big fucking triumph as a mom? She's obviously much more known for her comedic work. And it was exciting. You know, I always love when uh, you take a brilliant comedian or comedian and give them a strong dramatic role and they find the truth to that. And she's just so incredibly strong and vulnerable and funny and unexpected um, she it was just amazing to watch her work. I'm Canadian and she's just a national treasure in Canada. So I was a little starry eyed. Um, obviously, Brian Darcy James is one of the most brilliant actors. Everything he brought, he plays this doctor, uh, this, you know, this sort of low rent doctor who's one of Liza's first targets. And he's just got this incredible sadness in him. He's just so captivating in that role. Are you going to take him off the medication now? I'm not about to take medical advice from someone who threw a speaker's program that nobody I attended. Know, it was a shit show. I understand. Uh, Listen, you deserve a big event. Huge, huge. Other doctors need to hear what you have to say. Those guys? No, they're not those guys. They're podiatrists, the industry. I'd be remiss if I, you know, Andy Garcia was the, you know, David and I talk about how, you know, if everyone's playing classical music, here comes Andy Garcia playing jazz. Look at the floor and see how dirty it is. You know how much it costs to polish this floor? $80,000! So from now on, in Santa Therapeutics, we will be working with our shoes off. It was the missing ingredient to the stew that brought the whole thing together. He 
is just absolutely incredible in the role. He brings this improvisational spirit to things that just shakes his colleagues and, and co-actors and moves them into new directions. And some of the stuff that he just came up with on the spot and improvised ended up making it into the movie in really surprising ways. So yeah, I mean, across the board, we're and there's too many to mention here, but we're really, really fortunate. Had Andy Garcia ever actually held a tower of popcorn in his hands before? That was a question that I found myself wondering. That, that, that really struck true to me. I was like, I bet he's never actually seen or held one of those things. Um, Hopefully so, few have. <laughs> <laughs> I bet Catherine O'Hara has, though. She strikes me as somebody who might actually give that gift. I buy that. There is a very interesting framing device in this film that I thought I really liked, which was there was this interjection of scenes where it looked and felt like a documentary um, with these documentary style interviews. Um, David, can you talk about why that choice to include some of those scenes? Because it did inject this like little feeling of realism like coverage of the opioids crisis that we'd seen or like coverage of news stories that we'd seen. And it was a very interesting sort of break from the from the action. Yeah, you bet. I, I think it was just a really useful framing device in terms of, I was very new to the pharma industry, we all were, so it allowed a very entertaining way to present dense information in a way that was accessible and kind of fun to the audience. And it, it also is just a nod to the fact that this is inspired by true events. So you want the audience to feel that with those documentary segments we are relating to a real world um, company and a real world event and um, so they were utilized for those two reasons one is we could we could very quickly give the audience some essential information that then allowed us to sort of continue with the emotional journey of the characters and two it's just sort of reminding the audience that this happened this was out there of course we've been inspired by what happened and we've adapted things and we've changed things it's a bit like taking a piece of jazz music and then we adapt it to make a sort of very popular, accessible, entertaining sort of exploration of the themes and ideas in the original in the original story. But yeah, the the documentary things and that we I think they were always baked into the script, weren't they, Lawrence? I seem to recall that Wells yeah. always had this wonderfully spontaneous, sort of chaotic kind of structure that was begun with that was really fun so yeah they were just very useful thing devices to have i think so there is a theme here that you know money itself is a drug of of a kind you know liza needs it to survive and then she becomes more desperate for it even when she has money because phoebe needs a very expensive surgery it seems like in many ways the more money everybody gets the more they want is that, you think, Lawrence, part of the American story? Is this a story of addiction driving addiction? I'm, I'm just curious about how you sort of view the character of money and the role that it plays in this story. Well, I, I think we, we wanted to do something a little bit different from, uh, you know, films like uh, Wolf of Wall Street or The Big Short, films that are really set uh, in the financial markets and are about pure greed, pure avarice for the sake of it. I think we got really interested in Liza being a more, her goals being more complex than that. On the one hand, it felt really exciting that we rarely see women in a role where they're not just playing 
the good mom or the good aunt or the good daughter, um, and they can fully embrace the immoral choices that someone makes in order to feed their family, in order for someone to succeed in the world. And we didn't want to sugarcoat or whitewash the fact that greed is something really driving this character. And that is a very real thing for a lot of farmer reps. But I, I think what we also found even more exciting is, and much more relatable, is this idea of a character of someone from the lower income strata who just wants their life to matter, who knows that they've got an intelligence, who knows that they have something to give to this world, but the world won't see it. When did you become an ingrate? You're Oh, you would have none of this if it wasn't for me. You know what? Okay, you want to name one thing you ever taught me besides, hey, Liza, get your ass hitched young and squeeze out a kid so he won't leave you. Name one thing you ever did for me. One. I made you a survivor. I survived you, Mom. I'm here because of me. And I think we really root for her because she's getting this opportunity to go in and li live up to her potential. And that just felt, you know, that we were running the table with, with, with getting a much more interesting, nuanced character. David, I have a question for you because you once said of your directing style, I'm not interested in frightening good work out of people. And I'm curious what you meant, what you meant by that. I guess, I, guess, I mean, I love creating a, a, a space that feels... Uh, that allows people to take risks, actors specifically, and and our, our colleagues, DOPs, costume designers. And so what I, I want to remove from the process is the fear of failure, is to take away the idea that I, I, want, I want people to be able to stretch for anything that they want to reach for, however absurd or crazy it may feel or sound in the moment. Andy Garcia is a good example. In this movie, there were no boundaries to uh, to sort of stop him from trying to from exploring every aspect of that character, and one of the things I do as well is, and I this is a technique I developed. I didn't develop it, but it's a technique I sort of really found useful when I was working on the Potters with the younger actors. Where you never you never call cut on a scene. You just reset, and you allow actors to to go again very very quickly without notes for the first few go-arounds and you allow them to just find the moment and find the truth and find the idea that is most interesting by just repeating again and again and again and then you cut and then you discuss and then you review notes and then all of that. It's my desire to create an atmosphere on set where people can try things and be bold and have some fun in the process without feeling that they have to yeah, because fil film sets can be quite scary, quite frankly, um, especially for newer actors coming up. There's a way of running a floor. There's a way of running a show. There's a way of creating an atmosphere where everyone feels they're in it together and, and we're building something together that we can all be excited by. And that's, that's the kind of atmosphere I love to, to establish. I think people can do great work in that atmosphere and in that environment. And that's what we built with this. There is this very powerful scene in which Pete confronts Liza in a garage. Why would you do that, Liza? God damn it. Do you remember where you were when I scooped you out of there? I know. When I gave you a shot? I gave you a fucking life and you do this to me? Pete, we killed people. Oh, bullshit. 
we did this, we did this, and now you're out there and you're like bonusing higher doses. We don't write the script. People are dead because of us. He says, you're greedy and selfish, just like me. And Liza says, I'm nothing like you. Um, David, can you tell me more about this scene? Yes, of course. Um, There was something really powerful about that space that we shot the scene in. It was below ground. Um, You could just see daylight peeking out the end of the car park. So it gave the whole scene an intensity and a, a kind of rawness that it required because this is where two human beings who, I mean, initially in our early script discussions, we discussed whether or not there should be a romantic engagement between these two characters. That should they sort of fall in love? Should they find each other attractive? And we, we ultimately decided, no, they're kind of kindred spirits in a way. They're both a little bit lost. Their, their lives are quite transactional and they see that in each other. So they're almost like a brother and a sister on this journey together. So I always felt that that argument and the relationship was like siblings. They And there's a wonderful scene with Chris and Emily on a balcony talking about the height, at the height of their farmer success. And they're looking out at this raging party and they've made huge amounts of money and the the company's just, you know, had the biggest IPO ever. And it's it's actually quite a surprisingly melancholic scene. And Chris's character says, you know, this is it. We made it. Uh, but they also reflect on the fact that they've both experienced a life of rejection, uh, a life of pain, a life of never feeling quite good enough. What is it? What? What's up your ass? Don't you sometimes wish that we were here because we'd done something remarkable, like something meaningful, and, and not because everyone's a greedy piece of shit. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you ever think that? Fix the fucking progress. Can I see you, tits. Oh, my God. So they're kindred spirits, in a way, these two characters, Liza Drake and Pete Brenner. And that scene in the garage when they finally, the relationship finally falls apart and Liza has to turn him in to the authorities and is it's like a brother and sister falling out and it's brutal and it's raw and it's honest we shot it in that space to give it a rawness and an edge that it might not otherwise have had i really love that balcony scene that you just mentioned as well because liza says that she doesn't know what vesting means with her options and it kind of reminds you that she's still brand new to this a and that despite all of the incredible competence and skill she shows as a closer She's not qualified in many, many ways to be doing the thing that she's been told to go out and do. But she has the moral compass and the skill. But like, you know, she doesn't actually have a Ph.D. She's she's just in there with this sales team and, and doing this work. And it's just it's a very, very interesting and, and, and nuanced scene. And I think a very, very strong one. So one of the reasons why I love watching movies uh, on Netflix is because you can then, when the credits are rolling, turn to the person you watched it with and immediately talk about it. You don't have to like, you know, wait till you get to a restaurant or like wait till you get to your car. I'm wondering, Lawrence, um, what are you hoping that people are talking about like right then on their couches when the credits are rolling in this film? I mean, there's there's so much in, in to, to unpack. You know, David and I were talking about this. W- one of the things that, that sort of I took away from it was... I'd had a, a doctor's appointment right around uh, the time we saw the first cut of the movie and the doctor was writing a prescription and don't want, you know, there's so many wonderful doctors and hopefully mine is one of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll let you know. But 
you, you really want to have the audience question that not everything in the medical industry is being done just because it's right, just because it's in the best interest of the patient. There's a lot of competing factors happening there. There is lobbying happening. There are regulations happening. There are uh, certainly graft and corruption happening from pharma uh, affecting our doctors. And I want people to really be thinking about that and asking those questions. Is this the best treatment for me? Is this the best medication for me? And to really be questioning our medical industry and really challenging the choices we make and the that thesis that you know, profit is always the best way to drive our medical choices. It's clearly very fraught uh, when 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 that is the only factor being considered. Well, Lawrence Gray and David Yates, uh, the film is Pain Hustlers. It certainly provides a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to talk about it. Great. Thank you so much. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Lawrence. Same here. So much fun. Thanks for having us. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to David Yates and Lawrence Gray. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 